Well, one of us slept in and one of us hasn't really slept at all, but we're here to talk gibberish, aren't we, Dom? Yep. We're here to talk gibberish. Might not be coherent. It might not even make sense, but fuck it, we're here. If that was an issue for the listeners, they would have stopped listening long ago. Yeah, we'd have one listener left. Hi, <laughs> <I> Lance. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been a hell of a lot of time. We've uh, we recorded our uh, best of the year last like oh, a month ago, and I'm like, we'll totally yeah, jump straight back on to record another episode right away. And oops. <laughs> yeah, the intention was to get another one recorded as soon as possible, but you know, yeah, we we mean well. Shit happens, but we we never really nailed that one. But it's yeah. It's been, a, it's been an interesting few weeks. It's been, uh, I, I gotta say, like, this last week has been fascinating because our childhoods came roaring back to life again. Um, oh, yeah. Linkin Park, out of nowhere, shows up with a song called Lost. And this is literally a lost track from Meteora, which celebrates its 20th birthday, which, you know, I'm a bit uh, not sure how to feel about that one because it's, you know, it means it's 20 years since I last listened to that album. But at the same, or 20 years since it came out, and I, you know, that was, you know, my childhood was like, oh my god, there's that new Linkin Park album coming out. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh wow, that's that's 20 years old? Oh, the, the grey is showing a bit more in the beard these days. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Out of Nowhere comes Lost, which is, I thought was a really good track. Um, I think it hits a lot of the kind of, the right mix of Linkin Park, where it's, it's that kind of softer, sadder side of Chester Bennington, but also that kind of like strength from within aspect of his vocals it brings it mm. really is that's what draws me to the band anyway. I I think it was the same for me. I think I was just like how at the time no one was really doing anything like that. If you know what I mean. No one was really doing that kind of mix of there was the obviously you had the record scratch and you had the guitar and then you had the two different vocalists. No one was really doing that. At the time, anyway. Mm. Uh, or no one was certainly doing it as well as Linkin Park. And then, like you said, Chester Bennington's vocal range just kind of, you know, it's like, oh, he's doing the good melodic, but then all of a sudden he would kick the absolute shit out of it and start uh, roaring. All right, this this guy can sing. Yeah, and that's one of the main things that shocks you when you get into metal at the first place is, I didn't know music could sound like this, because I think that was my initial exposure to like Slipknot, was I didn't know music could be this angry and I didn't know it could be this like aggressive and powerful and so full of energy because it was I'm used to like my parents music which is a bit more kind of laid back and chill but then my dad was just like oh I have this like other music that I don't play around you guys just because you know it's a bit more grown up and I'm like what do you got there chief <laughs> and one of those bands was Linkin Park <clears throat> and uh, yeah I just it's always been there since the start of my metal journey to have it come back a little bit and have it be no offense to the people who like the new Linkin Park, it's just not for me. Yeah. Um, for the last like three or four albums they released, it just wasn't. I wasn't feeling it. And then, but like to have it come back, have this part of Linkin Park come back is like holy shit. This is the good stuff. Yeah. But uh, uh, this is the CD that I I think actually broke because I played it that much. <laughs> it was just back in the days with CD players when you had to scramble about looking fucking batteries and shit because you wanted to listen to more music yeah the, the walkman but, days yeah or in my case the uh the woolworth's value cd player that you got for christmas oh we, we all call them walkmans but i guess the thing of like oh is xerox that no copy it like xerox is just the brand that everyone uses like yeah don't yeah, search yeah. for it in the internet you google it even if you use yeah. bing for some fucking reason yeah i got angry at bing earlier today and it still annoys me 
<laughs> I googled something. I mean, everyone gets angry at Bing just because it exists, <laughs> and it's an incredibly mediocre browser. It's just, I, I think, um, when it comes to Google versus Bing, I think we just don't realize how easy Google has made certain things until you have to Bing something. And you're like, oh, why are you like this? Why are you just not like yeah. that little five percent easier? But I digress. Yeah. The the Lincoln Park, like the, the kind of the CD Walkman days, where it was like you plugged it in, you literally plugged a little cable in. And you just put your headphones on and you would just disappear into this other place with this band and it was fantastic and this song brings all that right back oh yeah absolutely uh, uh, just just like a kind of heads up uh, meteora was literally the end point of my uh, lincoln park fandom because i i was on board for hybrid theory and reanimation reanimation gets shot on unfairly i think because th- we definitely went back and forth on how good reanimation actually is in terms of being a kind of out there uh, new metal record but quite literally you can draw a line under Linkin Park at that point because Meteora and then they went on to uh, Minutes of, minutes to Midnight and yeah. I think that's when they started doing songs for Transformers film and I was like you know what kind of out yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm done here I, I never really I kind of appreciated uh, like, uh, the reanimation album for uh, that one song that was like a video game I loved yeah. the shit out of that as a as a forty k fan. That was awesome. I was like, oh my god, it's, it's basically the tyrant, <laughs> yeah, versus the Eldar. And I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. Uh, but the rest of the album, just I never got around to it. And it's actually now one of my favorites. Like it's one that I I have songs for that in playlists that just come up all the time. I'm like, well, yeah, this one, and it's uh, yeah. a fantastic album. But it's yeah, those three albums that in, initial trio are just the early 2000s distilled into CD form. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to give a quick shout as well to the video for this. I don't know if you've watched the music video for this song. Yeah. Holy shit. Is that fantastic? Um, it, I'm going to butcher the names here, but it was directed by uh, Masiage Fusiara. Not entirely sure the spelling that one. And People Pleaser. Um... And they described it uh, on Twitter as a love letter to the band we all grew up with. And I said that barely covers it. But it really, like, there's so much in there to sit mm. and pick apart from, like, just classic anime and animation references to just references of old Linkin Park songs. And it's like, holy shit. You look at it, you go, this really is something that someone's put their entire soul into for several months to make it look that good. Yeah. And, to have and that idea. was always the, that was always the thing that I liked about Linkin Park music videos is there was a lot of anime influence in there. And when you were a a young weeb back in the early two thousands, you were like, "Holy crap, we're validated now!" <laughs> Did you see that Linkin Park music video? They had Gundams. Dude, there's a Gundam on the bed. Shit, dude, that's so cool. <laughs> Mike Shinoda and Chester Bennington are the real deal, bro. They that's... have Gundams. <laughs> It's uh, but to have it come back again and be like just so, like so prominently, this is just an animated music video and it's fantastic. A lot of rotoscoping, which it can look wrong at points, but at the same time, I I like it as a visual style. It's very definitive. Like it's, you've got that kind of human movement, but then just the drawing over the top of human movement is always interesting to see how how it pans out. But it's so well stylized, like it's very modern. Um, it it doesn't. I mean, I I think a bunch of people love to have it like that kind of early nineties style of anime but it's mm. that doesn't always translate very well and it doesn't look good unless you're a fan of that aesthetic so yeah having it be this kind of very modern take on anime is just 
oh, just chef's kiss the whole way through. Yeah, absolutely. And moving on from Linkin Park, talking about other shit that made me feel like I time traveled, uh, was the Nintendo Direct that came out, uh, and they were talking about uh, new games and shit that were coming to the system, and most of it was just, hey, you remember this game that you played in the Game Boy Advance, Advance Wars? Well, it's coming to Nintendo Switch alongside a shit ton of Game Boy Advance games that you're going to have to pay £35 a year for, which I think, I mean, if it's only £35 a year, that's not too bad. That's not bad. Yeah, I mean, it's... Three Game Pass month? Ultimate's, what, eighteen ninety nine a month? So yeah. It yeah, makes a bit of sense. Then following on from that, it's like, oh, you like Metroid Prime? You remember that game on the GameCube? Well, it's coming. It fucking Nintendo Switch. And most people are just going, you could announce, you could stop there. You've given us what we want. We've got Game Boy Advance games on Switch, and we've got ga- a new GameCube game on Switch. Just stop there. And then it's like, no, 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 we got more RPGs, we got more DS games that are coming to Switch. And then everyone's just going to sit and thinking, Nintendo didn't really have to go this hard for a random Direct in the middle of February. Yeah, because like the just after Christmas period is typically like a slump for just about everything. So yeah, Nintendo yeah. saying, it's time to absolutely ball out in front of everyone when nobody's really... I guess maybe that's the point. Maybe nobody's really looking for big news. And then all of a sudden Nintendo goes, bang, here's one. Bang, here's yeah. another. Yeah, I see... Although, I see Legend of Zelda. Um, yeah, the, that was the big kind of uh, highlight uh, sort of piece at the end. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be a... I'm going to be a hater right now. I'm going to drink some of that haterade and say that the, the trailer wasn't good. Uh, for being delayed for six years and not having showed a lot of it, that trailer did not show six years worth of innovation and development. It was not a good trailer. And then I see Pikmin, I see Samba de Amigo, Party Central. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, I mean, fucking Dreamcast game is coming back. Uh, sea of Stars, why have I heard of that before? Sea of Stars is a Kickstarter RPG, uh, sort action RPG, and it has music done by, I, I don't even, I think it's Mitsuda is their last name, and they are a fairly legendary game, compo- a game music composer as they did Chrono Trigger and a whole host of other games. But the fact that they had the Chrono Trigger composer in there, kind of, well, put it on my radar, and it's actually a fairly fun game to boot as well. So I mean, re, re, remaster of Metroid Prime. Yeah, that's sold stuff. But underneath yeah. that, this the article I'm reading from Game Rant right now, Advanced Wars One and Two. Reboot Camp. Yeah. Which, first of all, great name. I approve. <laughs> yeah. I've had my copy of that pre-ordered for a year now, and uh, they announced it last year. But of course, they felt under the climate with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It wasn't really the right time to put out a game that was basically all about war and where one of the main bad guys is basically an allegory for Russia. So they thought, let's pull this back until things simmer down a little bit. Yeah, and uh, I mean, just I remember you playing Advance Wars back in the day. It was borderline an addiction, to be honest. (laughs) It was, and... That game is, you say it's borderline an addiction, it is Stockholm Syndrome. Because that game beats you over the head in later levels. And as a young guy playing your Game Boy Advance SP in German when you're meant to be listening to the teacher, getting frustrated at one mission at the end of the game where you have 
three infantry units and one tank and an APC, and you have to take on the entirety of Germany and somehow come out fine on the other end. It's just, it's nerve-wracking. Yeah, I'm looking at everything else here, and it mostly just boils down to these big hits. Professor Layton, I remember that being like a... Is that the brain training game? That kind else? of. It's more... It was a puzzle game, if I remember right. Right. Like puzzle game, detective game type of thing. Yeah. The, but that coming back was another thing. As I was watching the stream, people just popped the fuck off when that returned. Yeah. Because Professor Layton is one of those games that showed up, people loved the hell out of it, they made about nine games in four years, and then it just kind of died off. Probably because they'd made nine games in four years. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's one of those ones where they found like a vein of gold and just rushed straight through all of it. Yeah, and, and the thing that helped that along, that pushed that along, was the fact that it was big in Japan and the West. Mm. So both Western developers and Japanese developers was just like, fuck, get out there. Like, we can make money in both states. <laughs> it prints money. <laughs> I'll just go for yeah. it. Yeah, looking at it, and it's got the whole steampunk aesthetic. It'll probably, I assume, be set in some kind of Victorian England. Something like that. I have one Professor Layton game, and I literally got it when I was doing volunteer work down at a, a church in Bones. And they had a pop-up charity shop and they were selling off a whole bunch of stuff and there's somebody just dropped in a whole bunch of DS games and said, oh, I'm, I'm selling these off. Uh, if anybody wants anything, uh, 50p or a pound and you can just take them. And I seen the first Lighting game and I was like, I'll take that. And it was like 50 <laughs> pence. And now I go online four years later and it's worth 90 quid. feel kind of bad for ripping that guy off, but eh, yeah. what am I going to do? He offered. Yeah, he offered. I took it. Yeah. Caveat emptor, bitch. Uh, I see a bunch of um, other stuff here. I mean, there's a Minecraft game coming to Switch that is probably going to kill uh, all children's productivity if TikTok hasn't done it already. Uh, yeah. Wheel of Katamari Reroll, which I, that's the weird game where you're rolling over stuff and it sticks to your body, right? Yeah, the whole point is to try and get as much stuff attached to the little rolling ball thing as humanly possible. Yeah. Uh, and I then... think it gets to the point where you roll up that much crap that you can actually take over the solar system. <laughs> I do see um, Bayonetta. There's a Bayonetta game in there. Um, I see Octopath Traveler 2. I think I remember what that is. I, I'm trying to remember if it is the exact one I'm thinking of. Yes, it is. It's this weird kind of yeah. uh, RPG, but it's like it's a very gorgeous style. Like, oh, oh yeah, it's what they call a 2D HD game. And I'll I'll get to Octopath Traveler in a minute because I have some I have some thoughts on that game. But Bayonetta Origins Cereza, I think the game is called, is it's basically someone said, you know how Bayonetta is famous for its high paced kinetic action? Let's just take that and let's make it a platformer with, you know, very, very scaled down action. Oh. I get that you want to try different genres and things, but when your game is known for action to then go to not action, it's just a bit of a weird move to me. Yeah, uh, I see Tron games and a Disney game in here as well, which is like okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I guess if Disney wants to make money there, they might as well go for it. And Nintendo's yeah. a good like match for them in terms of like branding. Yeah, definitely. But just talking about Octo Octopath Traveler, I don't know why that game is as successful as it is, because I bought it 
like most people, uh, I thought the 2D HD graphics were fucking stunning. And uh, the gameplay was, you know, just RPG fair and all that characters and art design looked fucking stunning. So it, it drew me in. And it was a fairly cheap game, something like £18 uh, on the eShop. So I grabbed it and I played it. And the whole Octopath name comes from the fact there's eight characters and they've all got their own separate stories. But what they don't tell you is the game starts from that character's point of view and you continue with that character and they get to a certain point in the game where they have to you know, do a sort of progression mission and that leads them on to part two of their story. But in part two, you have to do so much grinding and so much leveling up and so much, not not even story-based shit. The story-based missions only get you so much XP. They might fix this in later updates and shit, but the game itself was just so grindy that I stopped playing it. And then years later, I hear people talking about how they think Octopath Traveler is the best example of an RPG on the Switch. And my immediate reaction is just, did we play the same game? Because I don't think we did. Yeah, I, I think there's some people who just enjoy the idea of being stuck. They, they get to a world they like, and it's like, it, the idea of being stuck there for so long, for you, it's like, I'm stuck playing the same grindy loop. Whereas other people are like, oh, I, just, I get to be there longer. And it just yeah, I guess resonates so. with them. Yeah. I think for me, it was just, I, I, the characters' stories were interesting in the first part, but then the characters' stories don't change if I remember right in the second part, and you're just literally playing the same type of story beat. Well, if they kind of changed it a bit in part two, like introduced a new element, it would have been fun, but no. Playing the same shit. Disappointing. But apparently people love it enough to make Octopath Traveler 2, and then there's other games that are done in that style, like the Deal Field Chronicle, and uh, there's more 2D HD games coming out. Like Apparently the rumour on the on the vine is that uh, Chrono Trigger is getting a 2D HD remake, which if that is the case, I will be buying it day one. Although I am slightly worried how Toriyama characters will look in that style, but fuck it, I'll buy it and play it. I'm trying to remember what Chrono Trigger is. I don't know if I played it. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think it would be your cup of tea, because I don't think you're a fan of the old turn-based RPGs, but uh, Chrono Trigger is, in my opinion, the best turn-based RPG, pardon the pun, of all time. Uh, I, I dig the style. It is very Toriyama. Yeah, <laughs> it was about that time where Toriyama was working with Square Enix. They just made Dragon Quest, and his response was, "Yeah, I'll do it, but can I make this thing as well?" And like, yeah, sure, whatever. It's not going to do well. Then it's then it, to this day, I still think it's outselling every Dragon Quest that they release. <laughs> I I always love when a corporation says, "Yeah, but it's not going to work." We all know that, right? <laughs> and the creative says, "Ah, we'll give it a go." The public response is always fantastic. Yeah. And it's just, I always imagine some intern being in the room when that deal was made, and it's like, so you just realised you made that deal with uh, Toriyama-san? You know what else he made? He makes? Uh, yeah, Dragon Ball, it's never going to take off. Cut to ten years later, and he's just, you know, raking in the cash. <laughs> I mean, to, for, with that, as the business executive, worst case scenario, he also makes a shit ton of money. Probably more money than Toriyama. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's one of those things of, like, all was wrong. Oh no, let me cry into my pile of money. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> let me dry my tears with this $300 yeah. check. <laughs> just like the, the Woody Harrelson gif. <laughs> just rubbing his face with money. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, boo, tis I. <laughs> the one who was wrong. Oh no. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but that, that looks like a solid Nintendo. I say, like, there's no reason to do that in a February. Bro, we had... <laughs> there was no... You could have been like, hey, we're making a Kirby game. And everybody would be like, oh, shit, Kirby! <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm one of those people. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> they announced a new Kirby game. I was like, okay, I was going to get it. But it's always nice to see what they do in each new Kirby game to make you realize that it's the same shit over and over again, but they, they, they word it in a different way. Like, yes, it's back. <laughs> Kirby's back. I saw somebody describing Kirby and it was like, no you don't understand like Kirby is this cute little pink fluffy ball guy that goes around eating stuff and being weird, but he can also fight gods he's on that oh, yeah. power level you know, like, what? The, the weird pink guy <laughs> yeah, he tried to if, eat god and he almost once <laughs> if you ever want just a, a shock to the system, just read Kirby lore, because like I said, Kirby's this cute little puffball character. You know, he rides a star. He's, you know, one of his main weapons is a weird little wand thing. Mm -hmm. But the lore that leads into this is some of the darkest, twisted shit that you've ever seen. Like one of his uh, enemies is literally his best friend who makes a deal with a literal devil to try and match Kirby's power and becomes a demon god thing. <laughs> See, I, I was up in... Uh... Glasgow the other day and I was like oh go buy some manga and stuff like that because I'm up here I rarely make it to the big cities so might as well go to the bigger waterstones and grab books and stuff like that and I I saw the Kirby manga was sitting there and I'm like oh yeah someone made a Kirby manga now I'm like why has no one else made Kirby manga TV shows the works I, I'm now mildly interested in Kirby lore this is <laughs> yeah. this is a twist I and then they add in shit like the Meta Knight and you're like oh right Meta Knight's just a kind of he's what Kirby could be. It's like no Meta Knight's got his own sort of you know tragic saying like history where he's literally the strongest swordsman on the planet and the only reason he's trying to raise Kirby is because he wants a challenge. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had a drink in my mouth there and I nearly fucking spat it all out. <laughs> the idea that you're raising your own son so that one day you might finally have an opponent strong enough to kill you in a single handed duel. You're like, yeah. awesome. That is fucking metal. <laughs> And like, Why is the Kirby I'll, I'll look send so you cool? A I'll send you a picture of what Meta Knight looks like, and you'll think, nah, this guy's not a kick-ass badass swordsman, he just got a sword and a oh, cool I, mask. I, I know Meta Knight, I remember Meta Knight from, uh, from Smash, Bros. Smash Bros. But at the same time, yeah. like, the idea that he was just like, oh, I assume he was like, kind of dark, evil Kirby, just fucking around, like, just like, the way there's like, Mario and Mario, the idea that yeah. that would just be like, oh, Meta Knight's just kind of like, dark Kirby or whatever. The idea that he's raising him to defeat him so he can finally die in single combat. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I demand an honorable death, my son. <laughs> okay, Dad. Uh, we're weird little gooey ball people. Can we tone it the fuck down? There are children watching. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Kirby lore. Go, go and read it. It's some fun shit. Speaking of dark lore, Berserk. <laughs> um, I actually managed to finish the Berserk manga. I am up to, like, I finished volume 41, which is the Last volume published with all of Kintaro Muir's work. Hmm. And obviously after this, Kintaro is dead. Volume 41 includes chapter 364, hmm. which is one that was partway through completion, mostly finished at the time of his passing. So that one's a little contentious within the fandom, and I can see why. I won't get into details because, uh, Dom, I'm very proud of you for getting your hands on the second deluxe edition book. Um, I admire your restraint, but at the same time, I'm going to keep recommend like volunteering my copies of it at the same time. <laughs> so, Dom, can you please catch up? I'm begging you, man. 
I'll get there eventually, but I started this path. I will continue on it until I'm bankrupt, which, given how costly these books are, might be sooner than I think. <laughs> but, uh, I, yeah, this is... Um, I, I was emotionally devastated after finishing the manga because I, it just ends so perfectly for Berserk. If this is any other series, they'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? But if this is where we have to call an end to it, depending on how you're puritanical stances or I don't have that kind of thing where I'm saying okay it has to be Miro's work because what's happening now after Miro's death is that it's being written by a fan or written by a friend who was a close confidant of Miro's who has extra has chatted with him but the series as well um a veteran of the the manga industry so it's under the control of someone who knew Miro's mind on certain matters and how things should progress mm. and advised Miro as well and also uh, staff he had personally trained to take over the manga to make the workload easier. And it's being handled explicitly with the, with the, with the uh, blessing of Mira's family, and mm. then with the intention of honouring Mira's legacy. I'm cool with that continuing on, but if you were to say, no, that's where 364 is the end, or 363, depending on how you want to read things, um... Mm that is like i don't understand why you would end it there because it is a fantastic um series of character moments where we're at right now is it's the falcon of the millennium empire arc which mm -hmm. we're just kind of wrapping up we're now, we're now on elf island arc um technically because the, the guys have arrived at elf island but the falcon of the millennium mm -hmm. empire arc is basically a, a, like a breather after the absolute insane uh, I think it's the Fantasia arc that comes before that. Mm. Fantasia involves two all-out wars, the death of a god, and the arrival of supernatural monsters into the world. And it's the most action-heavy berserk gets throughout the entire run. And it's insane. And it's a wild ride and it's a lot of fun. But that is only part of why I like berserk. I love the action, I love the gore, I love the violence. I think it's a, a cool part of the story. Or it's a cool part of the world. It's um. But I'm here for the characters. Mm. And the last couple of arcs have just been about everybody chill, everybody take a breath. We'll do a little bit of action, a little bit of uh, fun stuff for everybody to just kind of keep paying attention. Um, but we want to have these big character uh, moments of growth and resolution to issues that have been plaguing characters since moment one, really. Mm. And yeah, I, I mean... I'm experiencing it differently from people who've been reading as the books have come out. Um, because uh, for those of you who don't know, Berserk took long hiatuses of like months where nothing was published. Whereas normally with manga you would try and do especially the longer running stuff, you'd put a a chapter every two weeks, every week mm. in some cases. Um Guts was on the boat as the, the phrases to say, uh, as as the phrases known in the community. He was on a boat for eight years. Uh, which is a very small part of the story, but it took forever for him to, for Mira to write it all and to draw it all and do it all himself. And it's what led to him bringing on uh, support staff to help him do the job a bit easier. Mm. And it's a fantastic... I really enjoy the boat arc, but I'm experiencing it differently because it's it was, for me, a couple books, and it was... I read it over the course of maybe a couple days. If you had to wait eight years, like if you got on that boat with guts and then you were on there for eight years, I'd be kind of pissed too. This is good. Yeah, if you were put on hold for that long. Yeah. It is good, 
for eight years. <laughs> it's uh it's a, it's a bit nuts to think about it that way, but I I really want a lot of people. It's not for everyone. I, I'm gonna give it the whole kind of you should be aware that this is ultra violent, including sexual violence, and that's gonna throw a lot of people out of this series so fast. Um, I I just that first page is a litmus test. Do you want to read Berserk when it is a man fucking a demon woman and then being like surprised and then blowing her head off with a cannon? If that's not up your alley, neither is the rest of Berserk. But if you are okay with that type of thing, yeah, it's one of the best things I've ever read. So, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. I, I want to think and eventually talk about it more because it's, I mean, just, just the last two chapters alone Hmm. I've already like I I started trying to talk about it someday as like a quick message. It quickly turned into an essay about how all these things were tied together and all that. And I was like, I can't just be like in a Discord chat like, hey, send bang. Yeah, <laughs> you can't send this level of just kind of analysis and then um like just just taking things apart and over reading into all these little things that have built up to it. I I just I'm really impressed by the way things have kind of all being tied together there's still obviously things going on in the, the book and there's there's more to be explored but i'm happy mm. to see that they're continuing on with the series but if you're like there's all these things that you can sit and pick apart and i'm like that's that to me is the sign of something great is that i can sit there and pick it apart and read it and reread it different ways depending on my mood and how i interpret certain things and yeah, it's yeah. uh it's dense i'll give it that it's a, it's a dense work and i like it it's, been an absolute joy to get through this for the last i mean i want to say it was like in july 2021 i started so it would be almost 18 months that i've spent yeah, reading this series and just oh just been it's been a joy that's all i'll say yeah i think for me what i like about a comic book is when you can say to people no 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 it's not just that because i not so much now because you know I'm, i i don't have the energy to explain to people all this all the nuances anymore nor do i want to be that asshole but i used to be that kind of guy who's like oh you think deadpool's just random but no read the deadpool book i tell you it's not i say to you that it's not just you know whoa deadpool's weird and crazy like there's actually shit in there and even though i can try and stay away from that now it's still one thing that i will say about berserk it's, it's not just ultra violence i mean it is in there but you know looking at why guts is like that like looking at why He's fighting so hard. Look into why he's literally he goes fucking buck wild on any demon that comes across his path. It's because that character has went through such such an ordeal, such a amount of shit that this is what this world has turned him into. Like, actually, read the lore behind the character instead of just looking at the pictures and say, "Oh, look, he's you know he just blew a demon's head off with an arm cannon." Yeah. Oh, he angry. Oh, wow. Such deep yeah. character rating. But yeah. I, I, that's one thing as well. I want to point to as well as. For all that Berserk has the anger and has flawed characters, I wouldn't say any of them are rewarded. No, no, no. The world doesn't reward Guts for being angry. It's actively killing him for being this angry all the time, which is a fascinating thing for somebody to add into a strength and rage-based character. Yeah. This is dis this is destroying you from the inside. I'm like, that's that's deeper than it should be, but I appreciate yeah. it. And that is literally the whole story of Berserk. Is literally guts is killing himself quicker trying to fight against fate. But if he just accepted his fate, it would end, and it would just uh, his whole struggle would go. He'd be like all the fighting and things would disappear. 
that's that's guts his whole character literally his whole character is just you know keep fighting through what's what's on its way yeah and i mean there's characters that identify with him as being the struggler yeah you know, he who struggles against death and you're like oh yeah that's yeah that is a that's a title you would give somebody in this position but yeah i mean mm. it's an interesting discussion that's come up because there's that have you heard of vinland saga before yes i've seen it on seen the, the trailer on netflix it's a fantastic show and it's got a very similar idea where it's about a, a young man who is basically insisting upon becoming a killer mm-hmm. and people wiser than him insist hey turn your back on the life of violence find something worth living for outside of the battlefield trust me i've been there i'm begging you not to please just walk away and find happiness outside of death and it's all that conversation that it resonates so much with berserk at the same time that they're actually compared favorably like it's it's not like where people say oh it's naruto versus bleach uh, it's not the same thing where it's like villain saga versus berserk. It's these are both interesting takes on humanity and violence and masculinity and stuff like that. And it's not in a very condescending, annoying way. It's very kind of thoughtful and lets you explore the idea yourself. It's very interesting. Mm. So I recommend villain saga. The anime for it's pretty good. Um, there's some dodgy CGI in some places, but for the most part, it's fantastic. So. I'd recommend mm-hmm. it's on Netflix as well. It's easy to yeah. get access, which is half the battle with that show because it was on Amazon Prime for months, in fact, years actually, and I never watched it despite knowing it was like a, a solid 10 out of 10. And then when it finally arrived on Netflix with an English dub, so, okay, now I can sit down and watch it because it's much more accessible. Yeah. Although you do get the interesting issue with uh, European languages at the time where you have characters, because it's dubbed, everyone's speaking English. But you have a character who's Danish speaking to an Englishman or speaking to a uh, a Frenchman, but they're both speaking English, pretending they don't understand each other. Yeah. Ah, this mm, kind of fucks yeah. with the European setting. Yeah, they they do that. Obviously, I don't think I, I don't think I really came across many anime that do that, but they do that a lot in Doctor Who mm. when. A character, or maybe a French character, and they'll start speaking what they think is French, and be like, "Oh, sorry, I I don't understand you." It's like you're both fucking speaking English. <laughs> this hardest <laughs> translation matrix doesn't work. I think the actual uh, the, the example I, I I know most off the top of my head is it's Thorfinn, who's the Danish guy, approaches two uh, French soldiers at the edge of a camp, and they're both speaking English. <laughs> he says, "Hey, do you guys speak Danish?" And like, "No, we don't." What are you saying? We don't speak. We don't speak your language. We speak French. Do you speak French? <laughs> You're both yelling at each other in English, you fucking dicks. <laughs> Although, to be fair, it is true to the Japanese adaptation because it's the same issue, but everyone's speaking uh, Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Except for there's, um, there's borrowed words that don't really translate well in Japanese. So you've got like occasional things being yelled in English, and it's like, wait, is that English because it's English, or is it English because there's no Japanese word for that, and therefore it's a borrowed word from English. <laughs> so that whole other level of just like, what the fuck? <laughs> and as it's being spoken by a Danish person, is he speaking that word in English or Danish? Because he's working as a Danish person with the English in this series. You're like, ow, ow, my head. <laughs> yeah, I- I'd recommend Villain Saga. And obviously we've been talking a lot about Berserk for the last yeah. 18 months. 
but yeah, this is this is the moment where I tell you it has all been worth the hype. And yes, it is dark. Yes, it's terrifying. But it is a very good series. As I as I move towards my my New Year's resolution, reading more, I think I'm finally going to crack open those Berserk books and get them read because after Uzumaki, I fucking devoured that book. Within about two weeks, I'd finished it all 600 pages of it. I'm reading another book that, again, has been sitting on my shelf that I need to finish. Uh, the unofficial backstory of Resident Evil, Itchy Tasty by Alex Aniel. Uh, I got about three chapters into it last time, and then I just stopped reading it for whatever reason. So I'm starting that book again. And I've got a whole bunch of other books that I'll, I want to read first, but they're comic books, so uh, I'll probably get through them fairly quickly. But definitely uh, looking, to, looking forward to getting torn into Berserk, and quite a few other comic books as well, because I went through I got through uh, Christmas presents. I got a lot of books. Uh, for example, I got the first three volumes of Preacher. Wait, I remember which, watching the TV show for that. I think. And I am very excited to get torn into them. I also got a comic book that I've been looking for for fucking years, and I got the special edition of that for Buttons. It is a book. It's a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles book, because that was also a comic as well. Uh, it's called The Last Ronin. And uh, basically, Shredder wins, wipes out all but one of the Ninja Turtles, who literally takes it upon himself to using all of his brother's weapons, fight back against the Shredder. It sounds it's a very simple premise, but it's fucking amazing. Just the idea of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles revenge plot is yeah. pretty cool on its own. And the good thing about the the TMNT comics is that they're not afraid to get bloody because it's turtles that are called ninjas with weapons. I was just about to ask, does it get violent? And if so, how gory are we talking? Because if you were having, like, if the rest of the story was all kind of like PG-13, where there's like a little bit of blood or whatever, and then you have this one series where it's like an alternative ending, where it's just one last turtle versus Shredder, and it's just violent as all hell, that would be even cooler. But if the actual comic books in general are violent and gory, that's also cool. Oh yeah, the uh, Eastman, I, I don't remember the first names, but the, the authors, the fathers of the TMNT saga are uh, Eastman and Laird. They always put in violence, like because it's ninja turtles. They have blades. They have weapons. They're fighting other ninjas. Blood and violence and gore was always a part of it. And then when that, obviously that got translated into the cartoon, they were like, "Okay, let's have them use their weapons, but let's not them have let's not have them, you know, cut arms off and shit like, that. you know, fucking I'm, Nickelodeon, you bitches." Just imagining uh, the screams from a nursery room as somebody like just jabs a sigh into somebody's eye and just pops yeah. it out like a. <laughs> Oh yeah, plenty of shit. And the so there's the kind of violence in all those books. Obviously, they'll have a direct cartoon tie-ins where it's a bit less violent. But the mainline non-TV show-based comics are very violent. And uh, the Last Ronin is no exception because it's literally the Shredder and the Foot Clan have basically taken over New York City, and you know they're getting slashed and stabbed, and you know people are getting cut up left, right, and center on New York City streets. So whoever the the titular last Ronin is, because that's the whole the whole point of the Ninja Turtles is they're all color coded because originally they all had just red masks and you differentiated them by their weapons. Then that got translated to TV and it's like let's add in a bit of color. So uh, and in the last Ronin, the only remaining Ninja Turtle is wearing a, a black bandana and he's covered in sort of black garb and he's got all the weapons. So you're just the whole fun of the story is who the fuck is this last remaining turtle? Because you're sitting thinking, well, Leo's the leader, so. It's not going to be him and Raphael's the strongest. It's definitely not going to be fucking him. So I've I've got my theories as to who it could be, but I'm genuinely just want to get reading the book. 
Now that was going to be a follow-up question was, okay, you've been very coy about not naming the turtle, but you don't know the name. That's an interesting twist as well. Yeah. I like that. Because it's literally, uh, I will say, it's it's fairly common knowledge because the book has been in it for a while, but the the, the book starts with the aftermath. Uh, the final turtle is literally running away from, you know, whatever's happened. And he's got, I think, He's got a couple of the other turtles' weapons on him. Like he's got a, a broken samurai sword. And he's got a piece of Donnie's staff. He's got uh, nunchucks, and I think he's got a sigh or something at his foot or something. He's got all the weapons around him, so there's that misdirection. You don't really know who it is. And he literally kneels down and takes the sword and tries to kill himself. Oh, holy he, shit, okay. He passes out because of blood loss and wakes up, and I think a couple of his other sort of... Uh, compatriots are helping him, some of his other allies are helping him, and then literally that turtle disappears once he's healed and then he comes back as the, you know, the last Ronin, decked out in the sort of the black turtle garb. But from that point on, you can realise, this is not fucking around. You know, if you have that as a book, I may need to borrow that. <laughs> yeah, I've got the hard copy, but I will happily give it to you once I'm finished. Fucking sweet, dude. <laughs> Is it okay if I eat it while eating pizza? Because I feel like I have to. <laughs> if you get pizza on my book, right, okay. <laughs> I will be annoyed. Because I, I can't eat pizza. I don't I, want my book smelling like pizza. <laughs> I have bad news. <laughs> it's gonna smell like pizza, bro. I'm sorry. <laughs> Actually, yeah, no, I think uh, I think you have to if you're if you're reading a TMNT book, you have to have pizza there somewhere. Yeah, I uh, just because you mentioned Jujito, I've already offered to give you Gio. And I have a few more books as well. Um, I have a few books. One's called Smashed. Mm -hmm. uh, one's called Deserter. I then have a book called No Longer Human. And that one's different. Mm -hmm. Everything else is Junjito's own work. And um, I have... I like a lot of his short stories. I'll actually talk about the anime that they made out of his short stories. Um, that came mm -hmm. out when we were between episodes. But the, the other one I have... Uh, no longer human is it's a book written by a guy who is very famous in Japanese literature but is very little known outside like in the west and that guy spent years insisting that, that the book was not about him uh, despite the fact that it's about a guy who kills himself and then like a few months or I think it was a few months after he wrote the book he killed himself as well in almost the same way and Ito has been fascinated by this book for so long, he's like, I'm going to adapt it into a manga. And I have the book now. And it's huge. Um, it's about the What's that book called? No Longer Human. No Longer Human. So it's like, huh. I've never seen him adapt somebody's work before. And I think he'd be very good at it. So I'm, I'm going to get that one I'll read. I think that one would be slightly different from what I'm expecting from a Junji Ito novel, but... Yeah, yeah, I'm um having watched I just go straight into this. Uh I watched the anime that Netflix made for Junji Ito collection. So mm. back I wanna say early twenty twenty two, there was a a show on Crunchyroll called the Junji Ito Collection and it was panned by uh viewers. It doesn't really follow the style of the like the writing and the setup and stuff like that because it's hard to imitate manga in anime. It doesn't seem like it should be, but there's certain things that manga fans expect out of story and certain structure and pacing that doesn't really translate well to anime. So anime has its own rules, its own way of doing things, so you have to kind of 
if if you're going to make an adaptation of a manga, you have to lean into being the anime rather than just trying to one to one copy the manga because you're never going to get the feeling quite right. Hmm. And if you do, it leads to a kind of stilted looking show because obviously you're, you're imitating a still life drawing. Um, I I think it's fair to say it was not well received for the first one. Yeah, I prefer this one. Uh, the Netflix the Netflix. It's not even like the Netflix version of the same show. It's entirely different shows. Um, they've chosen different stories to adapt. It's different. I think it's a different studio behind it. I'm almost certain mm. it is. Um, but yeah, this is better. Not everyone is a banger, though. Like not every episode is even good at points. Uh, but I'd say overall the quality is a bit higher. It's it can be really hit or miss. And I'd say that there's like a middle third of this. The first couple episodes are a bit off because it's just strange characters and it just doesn't quite hit you right unless you're in the right mood for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a middle run of the show where it's just fan fucking tastic, and the imagery is yeah. wild and out of control, and it's everything you want from a Junji Ito adaptation because Ito's imagery is insane when it when he wants it to be. I mean, Uzumaki features a guy wrapping himself inside a cylindrical uh, like barrel so that he becomes a spiral. And like, that's yeah. so fucked up. <laughs> it's so messed up. You can't help but like it. Um, uh, and then like stuff, even like Jack in the Box. Is that is that Uzumaki? I think it is. Sounds like it. Uh, as a guy with a car spring. Oh if, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the one in the the kid in the graveyard, the one that's trying to get uh, the main character's attention. Yeah, he 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 plays the kind of classic trick of like hiding around the corner and jumping out to surprise you because that's how he wants to get attention and get noticed. And uh, yeah, he ends up with a spring in him and using that to be a kind of jack in the box, bouncing around chasing people as a zombie. And uh, yeah. I remember reading that and be like. This is so fucked up, but so fucking awesome at the same time. And <laughs> really, I'm impressed by how weird your mind got there, sir. Very well done. Yeah. And that, that's the thing about uh, Uzumaki. I read it and I'm, I immediately wanted to text you saying, you know, give me the next one. But uh, nah, I need to pace myself. I don't want to burn out in Junji. Uh, and I just, I feel like the, the visual was stronger there for how they adapted or the stories they adapted. They, they did a really good job of it. You'll probably have seen some kind of visual of the uh, the floating balloons. Uh, if you're hanging out online, I think it's called the hanging balloons. I think I have that short in one of the. I think it's in the Smash collection, so yeah. I'll be able to compare the two. Um, oh, I get to finally do this. I need to be a total fucking cunt about this as well. Actually, uh, I think you find uh, that the adaptation of Tommy was a bit subpar. I preferred the manga. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, there it is. I finally become that cunt. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I actually, I, I the part of Tommy the adapted was pretty good. It's the initial kind of reaction of what the hell is Tommy? I wasn't sure where they'd go with it because there's so much of that story to pick apart and which part do you choose which fits the best into a surprising short horror thing. And yeah, the introduction of Tommy's powers is probably the best place to go. And then you leave it as a kind of a nice mystery ending, which is probably the right... I'd say it's definitely the right way to do it. Because doing the full story would be a movie in itself. So, yeah, there's, there's parts of it I really like. Um, but I, I said to a friend, because she'd started... She knew a little bit about Junji. She'd seen um, the one with the cave where people find a, a hole in a rock that fits them perfectly. Yeah. And they go further and further into it. 
and I she's seen that part because she read it and was like, that was so fucked up, I want to see more of this guy's stuff and never actually yeah. followed through on it, which understandable, I do the same thing quite a lot. But the she was like, I, I read the hanging or watched the hanging balloon part of it, but I'm not sure what else to watch. And I'm like, I will give you the list of the good stuff. You can skip yeah. over stuff that you might find a bit weird. Um yeah. but again, it's it's horror. I think horror's got that same kind of subjectiveness. Like what's terrifying for you and me is not the same as what's terrifying for someone else. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh it's an interesting adaptation and I, I really enjoy when somebody at least tries for it. I think they put a lot of effort into this. Um, but it's it's still a very strange he's a very strange man, Ijunji Ito. And his mind works in fantastic and weird ways. Yeah. Fantastic yet terrifying ways, some might say. Yeah, there's some times you're like, has anyone checked up on him? <laughs> yeah. How often does he just sit down and have a chat with someone? But if you actually watch the interviews with him, he's the nicest man. He's just a yeah. nice little guy. I think all the weird has gone out on the paper and he's just left yeah. as a happy, fulfilled man. Yeah, absolutely. i I think I watched a an interview or a video with him recently and he was just he was rating horror pictures and I was like he just looks like the kind of guy that he could easily be your accountant that <laughs> that writes a horror manga on the side and you would never know he's, he seems like just a yeah. good guy he's that nice uncle the quiet one at the family meetings but on that seems all right he's, he remembers yeah. playing video games he'll play video games with you and you're like okay cool <laughs> yeah and all of a sudden you're like, hey, what do you do for a living? Let me show you, children. Yeah. <laughs> I would come Let me show you this thing I'm I'm writing. It's got something to do with snails. That sounds nice. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Why are they uh, gluing themselves together? Why are they mating? <laughs> um, to this day, I still, if I see a snail, I just kick it to the side. Fuck away from it. No. <laughs> it's like, I, I, miss me with that shit. <laughs> Well, in search of easier manga to read than Junji Ito and Berserk, I uh, yeah. I quickly read Weathering With You. In the best of 2022 episode, we talked a little bit about Makoto Shinkai, and yeah. I was reading 5 centimeters per second last year, which is one of his older films, but I also picked up, just out of chance again on that Glasgow trip, I picked up the entire manga for Weathering With You, and I've always seen volume 1 and 2. I've never found all three volumes, so I just I found it and I grabbed it, and um, finally managed to get my hands on all three, so... I, I like Weathering With You. It doesn't get the same respect as your name, because your name is seen as a masterpiece, and it is. It really is. It's fantastic. But because Weathering With You follows on afterwards, it's kind of seen as the lesser of the two. Hmm. And I, pref- I actually I'm sorry, prefer it. I like its visual style a lot more. I feel like it's brighter, it's more colourful, because it's to do with the weather and how that weather makes you feel and why you want to see a sunny day after years of rain and as a scots person i relate to that so fucking much oh yeah we're in the middle of winter and i don't remember the color of the sun (laughs) (laughs) and i say that knowing it's full well gonna be another couple months before i fucking see it again so there's a certain connection that i have with this this film that maybe some people don't where it's like oh no you just have different seasons of the year and i'm like "Mm, half our seasons are vaguely gray yeah even some are get quite gray yeah, so I, I kind of the the problem is obviously that with most of the time when you talk about an anime versus manga, manga gets to tell a better story because it has more time to sit with the characters. You can go into their thoughts, their feelings, and you know what they're going through at the time in more of their kind of thought and expressiveness, and it wouldn't interrupt the flow of the manga. Whereas if you did the same thing in animation, 
or just in a TV show or live action adaptation, it get really old really quick. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the manga really lacks the visual flair of the movie, which is again, it's all those colors. It's Shinkai's insane ability to draw landscapes and set up establishing shots and everything that he does right that's just so synonymous with his style of making movies is missing. And they kind of try to bring it in uh, here and there. There are a few random color pages that are dotted throughout the book, and they're they're good. They're interesting. They help kind of keep it uh, visually popping. Um, they used one the the first couple of pages of a manga being especially modern manga being color is pretty typical, just to give you a bit of a sense for the tone of the show or the tone of the book, or to give you an idea of how a character's dressed and what they usually look like. And then they use one random color page in book two for a key point in the story, but after that, there's no other like color in the story mm-hmm. at all. And you're like, oh, that's a shame because that's a key part of why I like this story is the use of color and the the weather and the feelings that attach to a sunny day. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like ah, oh, it's a it's a shame it lacks the kind of visual pop, but say like with five centimeters per second it gave me a totally different perspective on the character it gives you a different way of looking at the movie as well once you realize okay the movie is him telling you the way he thinks things went whereas the manga and the the light novel that follow are more kind of everyone else's reaction to him being a bit of a dick and it makes him a bit more interesting as a character that's not really there for this story and it's like ah, it's, mm-hmm. it's a shame but it's still good i still really enjoyed I, I just enjoy being in those like shinkai worlds but at the same time it's just it's lacking the the like the kind of the visual pop that's there, so I'm kind of I'm not as invested in it. Um, mm. If I had a recommendation for this, if you n- never seen Weathering with you uh, or any Makoto Shinkai film, he does a great job with ring and uh, most weather phenomena. That's like, but this was about weather and how people are somebody controlling the weather. And one thing that stands out in this is. I didn't know how snowy Japan was because we assume it's like a kind of tropical environment. Uh, no, it actually gets some of the most snowfall per year on the uh-huh. planet. Um, there's parts of Japan that are like worse than the Alps. Uh, oh, okay. And it's because they're stuck in between two seas, which are both very warm waters, and then they cool over the mountains and you get like 20 foot worth of snowfall in a year. And you're like, how the fuck? <laughs> It's just more controlled, and it's uh, within certain times of the year that you just get massive snowfalls. There's some videos that um, they're abroad in Japan um, have they've it's like an Englishman going through Japan. I don't know if you've seen abroad in Japan YouTube channel, but it's a, a good fun YouTube channel. Um, but it's an Englishman going through um, Japan, and he's lived there for over a decade at this point, so he's very good with Japanese customs. So it's not like him being a fuck up; it's him just exploring and mm. explaining Japan. Um, but he's out in like certain parts of Japan, and like the snowfall is like double his height. Uh, holy shit! How the hell? Uh, people just live in that, and they're fine because that like the culture is there to appreciate cold weather and how to survive and how to set up your house properly so that it can take, you know, twenty feet of snowfall a year. But yeah, you see it, and it's visually like wow. But the the snow scenes in Weathering with You is probably the most standout moment where. They realize, oh, like, no, it's been raining. Oh, it's snow. Oh, we're getting into the winter. Oh, this is going to get seriously, like, this is going to get bad. This is going to be a problem. But it, it coincides well with, like, a key couple, like, turning points in the story of the movie. 
but this kind of fascinating dreamlike sequence of snowfall landing in a city is just so gorgeous but it's again reading the manga i'm like it's lacking that certain something yeah i suppose what is it's always lacking is when you t- anything that is lacking when you take a comic book to a if you go from a film to a, to a book, it's always just that that visual spectacle. Mm. Cause I know I definitely got that. And I what book was it? Fuck, it doesn't matter. But there was some book, some uh, comic that I went to reading after I'd watched the the films, and I was like, yeah, I, I get that. But there's, I get that there was more. Actually, I think it was Batman: The Long Halloween. Because I was watching that, I was like, yeah, they actually seeing Batman glide through Gotham. You actually get the sense of you know this the size and the heft of Gotham. Seeing it drawn. It's cool, but they just when you actually get to see it and you get to see the city itself, you know how it reacts to the 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 sort of the the elements and stuff. It kind of it cements that that feeling in your head a bit more than a book can, if you know what yeah. I mean. I get that way about lighting in certain senses because, like again, like if you're flying through a city, also assuming it's at night, being Batman, yeah, seeing those city lights, those towns, that kind of orange light that it's very harsh and it's always like in a certain one direction it's always up in a in a weird way it's yes. it, that gives gotham a bit of like character in a way where like there's no yep. lights up above batman is above the city watching but he's in darkness somehow i like yep. that kind of image of batman i think it's i wouldn't say iconic to batman but it's one of my favorite parts of his character design is how he exists in that world both above it and somehow in darkness yeah but i like unless you were to spend hours inking your drawing to make the shadows look good yeah <laughs> it's nobody's going to convey that for you i mean we could talk a bit about uh i don't know if you've seen the the latest spate of dc announcements where james gunn basically just after stepping in and uh taking over the the dc cinematic universe has finally decided right we're going to go with through storyline we're going to basically marvel this shit uh and we're going to present a unified cinematic universe that actually makes sense it's not just random films thrown together to try and make the most out of a, a fan casting or whatever yeah, uh, because... it's basically what you'd expect it's you know he's going straight back to basics with batman superman he's adding in a couple of different uh different stories like there's a, a comic book called the authority which i do not have any hold for police van Fucking five oh, uh, <laughs> it's all kicking off. Aye, uh, he's he's starting he's starting with the Authority, which is a a team up film, which has got something to do with the cast of Peacemaker. Uh, he's giving Amanda Waller her own TV show, which you know I I get because Amanda Waller's a fairly important character in the sort of DC universe at large. Uh, we're finally getting something Green Lantern related in the the Lantern Corps, which has. Uh, both Hal Jordan and John Stewart, who are the kind of the main two Green Lanterns in the, the comics run right now, as long as along with um, other Green Lanterns, like you'll probably see uh, Baz Khan, you'll probably see uh, the other the other female. I think it's Jessica Cruz, the other female Green Lantern. You'll probably see you know Green Lanterns from all sort of iterations and things like that. Uh, the thing that kind of sticks out for me is the fact that he's He's quite uh, keen to keep everything separate. As in, like, it's going to be a very harsh divide between the Snyderverse and then his stuff, or...? No, he's basically, with the new Flash 
movie, he's rebooting the whole thing. So everything up until the Flash film is canon. Then they're rebooting the series with Flashpoint. Right. And from then onward, it's a new timeline. But uh, Matt Reeves, the Batman, is going to be what they call DC Elseworlds, which is outside the main canon. So is, Matt Reeves' Batman's still going to happen, and they're going to continue with their own version of Batman that's in canon. Right, because that's like that's maybe the advantage you have of being DC is that you can say, "Look, we reboot worlds and have side worlds for everything. This is just how we're handling this, because this thing works by itself, but we're not trying to make everything else like that." Because I think that may have been the issue with the, the Snyderverse was they already had things in film like done and ready to go, and they said, yeah. "Oh no, we need to edit it to be more like blah." And <laughs> nine times out of ten, the blah was another uh, it was like an MCU thing. But every now and again, it's like, no, we need to make this more funny like that Shazam movie. And you're like, no, no, don't do yeah. that with Batman. <laughs> Although I think they're continuing with Shazam as well. I think Shazam's going to stay in canon. Which, uh, to be honest, yes. is not a bad move because it's, uh, what's his name, Zach Levi. Is, uh, is it Zach Levi? Yeah, Zach Levi. Yeah. Right, he, he's a good Shazam. He gets that kind of, you know, he's good as the man child that is Shazam. Uh, What's given me cause for concern is the fact that they're adapting uh, a Batman series called Batman the Brave and the Bold, which I'm okay with, but that isn't a Bruce Wayne Batman story. So it's making me think, are they doing Dick Grayson Batman just to really step away from previous iterations? Because that'd be cool, that'd be interesting. See if I don't have to watch his parents shot in that fucking alleyway again. Go for it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't have to watch Bruce Wayne's parents get shot in an alleyway. You'd have to watch Dick Grayson's parents die from trapeze. Which, again, something new. <laughs> I'm sorry. I laugh at that because it's really wrong to imagine just the splat noise. <laughs> I'm a horrible person. I'm sorry. <laughs> there's, a, there's a death in a Final Destination movie where somebody falls, lands on their like face, and snaps their spine in half, and I think that's the funniest shit. And I just imagine that. <laughs> but at like a bigger scale. <laughs> I'm such a bad person for that. But... <laughs> Right, sorry, dead parents. <laughs> Taking it yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how you can properly segue away from that, but uh, <laughs> I know they're planning on putting Damian Wayne in there as the sort of lead Robin, which I'm fine with. Uh, if if they're willing to change things up, I'm okay with it. As yeah. long as it's done well and it's not done with the kind of, you know, oh, let's change Batman, let's, let's make it something totally different and end up with a Witcher situation where it's something that's barely like the character and source material but it's changed in so many other different ways. Yeah, and if you want to make a definitive statement of we're not doing the same as before, the great way to do it. I'd, I'd say that you could probably... Yeah, I think if you make big move of, like, step away from Bruce Wayne Batman to his accomplice and then having him mentor the son of Bruce Wayne, that yeah. sets up with a lot of stuff you can do. It moves you away from all the previous... It basically moves you away from Ben Affleck. Yeah, who wasn't really much of a problem, but at the same time, he's been in the Batman role for so long. It's kind of, it's been his for a while now. With the exception yeah. of like a couple of older, like classic Batman coming back to do it as a bit. It's the fact that he's had the role for a few years now and done not a whole hell of a lot with it. I mean, he was in Batman versus Superman, which you know opinions are divided on that at the very best of times, and then he did. Uh, a scene in the Suicide Squad and then he did two versions of Justice League. He's not really done a whole hell of a lot 
Yeah, that was 2016. What? That was seven years ago. Yeah. Was, was there no other Batman thing he did before that? I swear there was something else. Uh, no. Uh, yeah, Batman he never got his solo Batman movie, yeah. Yeah, the, his Batman vs Superman it was meant to be Man of Steel 2, but then they shot the bed halfway through it. Mm. That's a shame. Uh, he could have done something with that. Yeah. And then they're going back to square one with Superman. They're basically, it's Superman year one type of thing. It's a younger Superman. So Henry Cavill, yet again, I think for the third time now, has lost the role of Superman. <laughs> and he's, he was doing so well. <laughs> he really yeah. had the nerd world in his hands. And then just it kept falling away. And you're like, don't worry, he's still got that. Oh no, he doesn't anymore. Fuck. He's still got Warhammer. Yeah. <laughs> he's always going to have that. We refuse to let them take it away from him at this point. <laughs> yeah. He deserves a win. Okay. He's Henry fucking Cavill. Give him a break. Yeah. I reckon we might see the breaking point of Henry Cavill. Like, he just might start punching heads. <laughs> <laughs> he's fucking massive. <laughs> exactly. He, he's going to kill somebody. <laughs> Just gonna be like you must massive... Jeff Bezos comes up to him and says, "I'm sorry, Henry, but we need to cancel your Warhammer film." The following week, the following week, the the, the headline will just be, "And today, actor Henry Cavill caved in the skull of Jeff Bezos." <laughs> Jeff Bezos found with his head up his own ass, literally. <laughs> <laughs> the only comment from Henry Cavill at this time was, "I'd do it again." <laughs> <laughs> only comment from <laughs> Henry Cavill was for the emperor. <laughs> But he sprinted <laughs> off into a field, clutching a rifle no one knew he had. Ah, <laughs> uh, on on the victim, we noted several rats- lacerations that could only be counted as something from a chainsaw. We do not know where he got this. These things don't exist yet. <laughs> it appears to be a weapon from a personal collection he's been acquiring for years. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's weird to see a, a universe get restructured like this in real time, when all the component parts of the previous universe are still out there. Like, yeah. Snyder obviously had to step away. He's gone. He's doing his own thing with Netflix. He's doing Army of the Dead, and he's doing a sci-fi movie as well. Mm. And then obviously Henry Cavill's out and about, and then you've got Ben Affleck. I don't know. Maybe he's just done with it. Like, if you were basically being jerked around for seven years being promised movies that you never... That's the thing is, the movie came out in 2016. He was probably working on it in 2015. Yeah. So add an extra year to 18 months onto whenever he actually became Batman. If you've been getting fucked around for seven, eight years and then they're just like, yeah, you know what? I think it would go in a different direction. I'd probably just throw in the fucking towel and be like, you know what? Fuck you. Yeah. I think it's just, like you said, it's got to a point where it's just, he's been promised and promised so many different Batman films. It's like, you can get to direct your own one or you're going to be, you know, this one's going to be the one that you're in, but you don't get to direct it, we'll give you uh, an executive producer role. Mm-hmm. I'd walk away from it as well. Guaranteed paycheck or not. But I don't fucking care. Whatever uh, whatever reward was promised, it's not worth it. But the key question remains, outside of needing him for some sci-fi bullshit, how the fuck is Ezra Miller still the Flash? I have no idea. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's unreal. <laughs> so, the fact that James Gunn basically said to him, uh, or said to people on Twitter, the film is really good. You're going to love how good The Flash is. Yeah, but surely you're going to honour the whole, you know, picking Ezra Miller afterward because the guy's a fucking psychopath. 
importantly, he's still getting kicked out, but at the same time, the fact that they're bamming up Ezra Miller's The Flash before he gets kicked out is kind of weird. I think that might just be a studio thing where it's like, okay, we can't really just say this is like, it's being done, and we're just going to shove it out there and then like throw it on a streaming platform and then just forget about it, and then release the new canon uh, starting like six months from now or whatever. Like, not going to be six months, but like a year or six months from now. Yeah. You can't really do that. I'm pretty sure that would damage their reputation to the point. I mean, also as well, that Batgirl film is gone as well. And that's yeah, confirmed which is gone. A, which I'm not going to lie, is, is, is dumb. It's remarkably dumb. <laughs> it's, it's, it's in the can. It's edited. It's basically ready to go. Yeah. Nah. And I'm mor- now I'm like, okay, now I'm morbidly curious. How bad was it? Or like, how off-brand was it that you're not releasing it? Like, I um, reckon enough, uh, enough um, pressure to James Gunn, and he will release it on HBO as a as a one-off special or something like that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> or worst case scenario, use the footage and add in the old like Adam West, bam, pow, biff, like yeah, <laughs> go all in on like absolute cheese and just say, yeah. you know what, this is like leftover footage we have, and that's it. It's it's like a whole film's worth of leftover footage to say nothing of the extra takes, the extra bits and pieces, like all the extra bits that we never see during film production. That's mm. all sitting in there too. That was like six, I don't know how long it was to shoot, but that's like a year's worth of work for someone. Yeah. The initial kind of director, writing, producing side of things. That started a year ago and to just be like, nah, <laughs> the mind boggles. I mean, they were in Glasgow for six months because I remember going to uni for a while and just seeing Gotham City fire vans and shit like that. So they were there for a while. So yeah, they put in all that work. They may as well release it at some point. And if they have to put in a, a Batman sound effects line, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I, I wonder about that because I, I think about, like, if you let fans re-edit stuff, what would they add stuff? For example, I, for a laugh, put some, uh, like, remember Van Helsing with... Uh, Hugh Jackman. Yes. The opening segment of that is in black and white, and it looks awesome because it looks like an old school monster movie. I took parts of later in that film, just like screen recorded it and then threw it into editing and stuff, and then made it like black and white. And it it keeps looking awesome because of all the texture in that movie. Hmm. I wonder if like you could make that happen. Like if you just let a fan in to be like, okay, just let me fuck around with the original footage and I'll show you what I've got at the end. And then like just release it on like a streaming platform. I wonder if you could do stuff like that where you just you go in and you add like the Bam Piff Pow stuff to like Batman. <laughs> yeah. Like just fuck around with stuff and just release it for a laugh as digital content. Be like, you know what? We're not really taking this seriously, but it's funny. We were fucking around in the editing bay with this for a little while. Yeah. Here you go. Here's a twenty minute YouTube video of like Batman v Superman re re edited with Adam West sounds. You know. <laughs> I mean, it's slightly disrespectful, but at the same time, it distances it distances DC from this whole you know we're going to be serious and dark thing that they tried, and quite frankly failed at doing. Yeah, it's the difference between it being like a dark series and an edgy series, and you're like, you don't really have much of a definition to work with for dark or edgy. But if you see the switch between a dark and an edgy thing, it's like, okay, yeah, I know you're just trying to be edgy. And it always mm. felt like that was kind of DC's thing, was we're going for a dark, serious universe. You're like, yeah, you're pouting a bit too much to be dark and serious. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, 
if you want to talk about dark and serious, but at the same time, slightly camp, I'd have to recommend Tom Hardy in Legend. Because I finally sat down to watch this movie after, like, I heard about it years ago, where, oh, Tom Hardy is playing both the Cray twins. For, for mm. those of you who don't know, who are not in the UK, uh, London Gangsters, uh, who used to run part of, like, London's East End, and who had a very weird relationship with the press, because they weren't just being, like, gangsters in a kind of traditional keep quiet and let sure nobody knows what we're actually working on type of gangsters. These people were in the newspapers all the time for throwing lavish parties, hanging out with celebrities, and basically just openly the most criminal people you've ever met. And at one point, uh, Tom Hardy got the or was basically cast as both the twins, and it was a whole thing as to how they were going to shoot the technical side of this so that Tom could be both the twins using like a stunt double or like using a body double of him to fill out the suit and then they would go back and edit his head on to both shots and it's it's mm. a really fascinating film um but I, I highly recommend that i think you've already seen it haven't you yeah uh, i watched it uh, after hearing the quote after hearing several quotes for the film several times i just decided you know what? fuck it it's on <laughs> netflix i'm gonna just watch it and fucking hell it's such a good film if nothing else you should definitely watch uh, the fight scene in the pub. Yeah. It starts as like a, a, a fake Mexican standoff. <laughs> With one of the about a shootout is a proper fucking shootout, right? With gangsters <laughs> and shit and guns. <laughs> Fuck you got there with me. Uh <laughs> yeah, probably been going to bite me a fucking cake. <laughs> it was me and my brother. This all started because me and my brother were massively drunk over Christmas and New Year. And just start quoting it. <laughs> and I've I've obviously seen like a few bits and pieces here and there, uh, like the the fight scene in the pub, and then there is a fight scene between the the twins in their like in their club, their fancy like upper end club that they run in London. Mm. And those scenes are like on YouTube because they're interesting, and it's obviously with, with Tom Hardy playing both characters. But then, see when you go into that movie, just it's so quotable. Just. <laughs> I love Tom Hardy's London accent. I've been a big fan of it since he started doing it in uh, Peaky Blinders, where he plays Alfie Simmons. And he's he's basically being uh, doing that London accent um, with his gangster character. And it's the same basic premise for a lot of his character bits and pieces, where it's that kind of um, that thick accent combined with just him saying the most outrageous shit he can get away with. And they write great dialogue scenes from where he's just taking the piss out of these ultra-serious characters and is borderline psychopathic for the majority of the, the series. And mm. with Tom, with Legend, he's playing two people, both of whom kind of lose their minds in different ways. Like, the, the Cray twins are not safe to be around, put yeah. it that way. Um, uh, it's, it's fun to watch him play both versions of insanity in the same room as himself, where one will be a bit more sane and sober, one will be the voice of reason, and one will be gradually losing their shit throughout the course of a scene, and then just have them both flip-flop back and forward, while spouting off fantastic dialogue. <laughs> I, can't remember, yeah. I can't remember why he said it, but it says, give Ron your sausage. <laughs> I don't know why that's fucking <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> but it ties in, like, they, they do a lot of work to make sure that all the, uh, the majority of the movie events tie into shit that happened during the craze real life, like the fact that one of them is outwardly gay which is a big deal in the 1960s but at one point they are tied to a politician like the, the gay twin 
is going to sex parties with a London with in London with a member of Parliament, which would not have been done in the nineteen sixties. And that comes up as a bit of drama. And then when it's reported to the Prime Minister, he says, Haha, great, we can use this as political leverage that the uh the other party are, are part homosexual and that will destroy the fabric of Britain. And it's like, you might not want to do that, uh, Prime Minister, because uh four of you guys were seen there as well. And it's like, ah oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I can't even use this political leverage. Well, fine. Just just tell them not to get caught again. <laughs> but it's it's interesting. It's a good window into that 1960s. Because we don't really talk about that part of British history that much. It's very kind of unknown. It was just kind of like, people just kind of got on with it, I guess. Yeah. Whereas like the 80s, it's all punk rock, rock and roll side of things. It just doesn't, like, people kind of gloss over that part of the world. And there's a good part that they bring up that um, the Cray twins were kids during the London or during the Blitz, so they would have seen parts of London, right, parts of their hometown, getting the shit bombed out of them. And from a very early age, they would have seen things that would have fried most people's brains and just kind of ignored it and got on with it. But obviously, you can tell it's kind of buried deep in their brains. This kind of casual attitude towards violence. If you haven't seen Legend before, we both highly recommend it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Even if you just want to be quoting random, you know, <laughs> quoting random lines, or you just want to see a genuinely good film, I'd highly recommend it. It's on Netflix, and if you want to buy your own copy, I, can ima- I can't imagine it too expensive on Amazon or in HMV or something like that. Hmm. It's up there with those weird, like, I think Tom Hardy is underrated as an actor. Because he has a bunch of good roles that everybody kind of goes, I like that role, I like that film, I like this, uh, like I love Bronson. Oh, yeah, Bronson by far and away his best film, yeah. Um, and uh, again, infinitely quotable, yeah. I um, want my hotel room back. It's uh, my favorite part. I, I read the book, uh, that the, the Bronson movie is based on, and the introduction is by Bronson himself, who mm. points out that Tom Hardy, when he came in to audition for the role he went to meet him as kind of preparation and research for the role and did a bunch of like chats with charles bronson himself and he said when that kid came in the door the first time he looked like it was all skin and bones and he came back six weeks later and came back looking like a cage fighter looking like he'd done a prison workout every day for six weeks because he had and it impressed charles bronson so much that he gave him the nod but okay you're definitely the guy for the role because you actually went and fucking did it you yeah. made the body that I have for this role. And it's like, oh, that's that, that's the commitment he has to these roles. I think as well, like, uh, obviously, Mad Max, Fury Road, fantastic movie. And yeah. I, in a weird way, I actually give him more props for admitting that he fucked up during the production because he said he didn't have faith in the movie hmm. because they were shooting it in such a weird way that he didn't understand what was going on. And then he says, when I actually sat down and watched it, he realised that he'd made a massive arse of himself and apologised to the director publicly, and I'm like, that is interesting. I, yeah. I can't imagine most people doing that. And then obviously, big fan of him, Peaky Blinders, and then whenever he shows up in other bits and pieces, I mean, everybody memes the shit out of the Bane performance, because it's, it's yeah. such a weird character. But it's a good character. Like, he's a good performer. I mean, I will stand by his version of Bane, as opposed to the Mexican wrestler one that we got on Batman and Robin, uh, I actually really like uh, Tom Hardy's Bane. 
I think uh, he gets the intelligence of the character because not many people realize that Bane is a genius. Yeah. And he manages to somehow look intimidating without Venom. So. Yeah. And it's um, it, it's interesting to see what, what he can do. I, I want to watch more of his films. That's where I'm at right yeah. now with Tom Hardy. Is I've seen a bunch of stuff that he's, he's been in, but I want to see more. And uh, it's very rare for me to follow an actor like that, whereas I prefer normally to follow directors to see what they're doing. Hmm. Um, I mean, uh, incidentally, one of my favorite uh, Tom Hardy films is actually Inception. Hmm. I've not seen that. I, I just think it's a I think he's pretty good in the film. Uh, he plays a very kind of, if I remember it, quite a posh guy, but he's a pro- he's approach to the whole heist thing. It's just no nonsense. Like at one point, they're trying to they're getting attacked from across the roof and they're using just sort of regular sniper rifles and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character tries to use a pistol to shoot them so then Tom Hardy appears behind him and says don't be afraid to dream a little bigger darling <laughs> and then obviously you've got him as Eddie Brock and Venom and, and his Venom verse I guess don't know if he really counts as part of the MCU anymore or whatever the hell is going on there um, or he's also appearing in a lot of old stuff older, older war films that's just kind of how you make your bone drill as a British actor is uh, doing stuff like Dunkirk um, and appearing in a bunch of other stuff like that. But yeah, he's been in a, a decent amount of stuff. Oh, Warrior as well. I've forgotten the, I think the DVDs for that somewhere. But yeah, I think every British actor has to appear at least in some of the uh, the World War Two mythology that we have these days. But does he pass the test of the true British um, actor? And has he been in the bill? No, he is not. That's a shame. Right, looking at his IMDb, it's Basically, the only thing left. He's on Layer Cake. It's interesting because I've seen um, some parts of that that I was like, well, that's interesting. Um, it's yeah. like old uh, Daniel Craig movie from back in the day. And it's like, oh, I actually watched that movie. It's apparently yeah. classic British uh, sleaze cinema, uh, sleaze, hmm. sleazy crime cinema. Um, hmm. Though, there was a film I was interested in, and it's weirdly enough tied to Bronson in a way. And it right. was um, it's the guy who directed. Uh, Bronson. It's called uh, Nicholas Wending Reffin. And he's a weird director who's made some stuff that has actually been genuinely mind-blowing. Uh, he made a film called Severed Ways which is with Madden Mickelson. And mm. it's a Danish film about Vikings making first contact with Native Americans. And it is not as cool as you think it is. It is just a guy wandering around in an art film for like an hour and a half <laughs> before he gets his head bashed in. And you're like, hmm. Interesting. Um, but I he has also made a series of uh like I think it's basically it's described as like a crime trilogy of films um that are on there. Um it's called the Pusher trilogy. Pusher. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah. yeah, he's made those and apparently they're very good. So they're they're recommended in the same vein as like Layer Cake and Legend, where it's like a, a regional crime drama. It's not like big American stuff. Uh, Pusher being Danish, um, as yeah. opposed to being like English. So I'm interested in his stuff. So he, just because I like that director, the stuff he's made is always very odd. Um, Nicholas Winning Reffin has made advertisements that are more shocking and visually entertaining and interesting than whole movies. I'm like, okay, <clears throat> weird, but go on. Um, so yeah, I'll check out his. I'll check out the Pusher trilogy at some point. I just need to find yeah. where the hell they're broadcasting because it's not like we get a lot of Danish cinema over here. Yeah.
although we do get um obviously through um Disney Plus, they having bought Fox got Fox Searchlight, which is their kind of like many it's not quite indie productions, but it's like if they don't want to put the, like the main Fox brand on it, it's not yeah, they get... slap Searchlight on it. Yeah, if you slap that on it, and they've got uh, Banshees of Insurin on there. Which... I have heard nothing but the highest of fucking praise for this film. Yeah. Uh, apart from you, uh, there's only one other person that I really talked about films, and he has been gushing about this film since it dropped, saying that it is just, it's not a typically difficult film to understand. It's just a good film done really, really well with uh, some top quality acting. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to one of my film friends about it, and she was saying it's it's one of the best films she's seen the last couple of years. But also, it is just, it is literally just, the description of it is two friends falling out. And she says yep. it's some of the best dialogue and acting she's ever seen in movies. And I'm like, interesting. Like, how <laughs> do you, I mean, maybe it's just that ADD brain that we've all got these days. But the idea that you just have a film of people talking for two hours and it's some of the best stuff you can watch this year is fascinating. And the fact that it gets no love until it's mentioned as an Oscar worthy film is just a sad state of affairs. To, to be fair, I think I'd actually seen it because uh, the main character, uh, one of the main characters, basically the guy that isn't Colin Farrell, uh, Brendan Gleeson, is actually genuinely one of my favourite actors. He was in a film called The Guard with uh, Don Cheadle. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't I think Don Cheadle was something like an FBI agent that goes to uh, some part of Ireland to investigate something and he has to liaise with Brendan Gleeson's character who is one of the they call him the Garda in Ireland and it's just a great film to, to say that Brendan Gleeson not that Don Cheadle gave a bad performance but to say that Brendan Gleeson stole the show from Don Cheadle kind of made me made me you know want to go and see the film then I watched it and I was like oh shit this guy is actually he does steal a few scenes from Don Cheadle and to see that he was doing a film with Colin Farrell set in Ireland does it? Yep, I'm watching this. It's yeah. it's too good to pass up. I think most people are familiar with Brendan Gleeson as uh the Mad Eye Moody in the Harry Potter series. And then you see him, you realise like, okay, I like that actor. I wonder where else he is, and he just keeps showing up in places and you're like, Oh shit, he's been everywhere for years and you've just as a as a younger person, you didn't really pay attention. But when you get to that kind of like a bit more mature film watching stage, you're like Oh, I really like his performances. I know he's in, uh, yeah. I know he's done stuff for the Coen Brothers, but I like him in Martin Scorsese's Gangs in New York. Oh yeah, I, th- I was going to say, if you say Paddington, I'm going to run on Lithgow and kick in the bullets. <laughs> <laughs> Just, hey, Carl, can you wait a minute? <laughs> yeah, sure, don't worry, dumb. <laughs> Just uh, the pitter patter feet, <laughs> getting closer and closer and closer, and then just whack right in the nuts. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd sign off using your microphone now, just get the bus home or something. <laughs> 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 uh, no, in uh, Gangs in New York, he is phenomenal on that. Yeah, that that is one of those films where like everyone in this is doing a hundred and ten percent, and it is paying off. Yeah. Although uh, Daniel Day Lewis is just like, I'm going to go insane, and you're going to watch. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. I'm down for the ride. <laughs> you absolute fucking maniac. Yeah, that's the only film of his that I can actually watch. Because it's, it's that good a film. I'm not a fan of Daniel Day Lewis. I'm just like, just try acting, you fuck. <laughs> I need to actually see if I've seen it. It might be one of those things where I may have only seen this film, 
but I just yeah. know I've seen him in scenes and he's very good. The last of Mohicans, I've seen that. Yeah. Um, there will be blood. I'm due to watch that very shortly. There will be blood's good, and it's uh, a random showing of the guy that played the Riddler, Paul Dano. He's in that. Ah, interesting. And I didn't realize until I went back and watched it recently that it was him. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's in the Age of Innocence as well, which is a Martin Scorsese film that I'm due to watch. Um, but it's for some reason it's like all of Martin Scorsese's films are these like down gritty uh films about crime and morality and uh Catholicism. And then for some mm. reason he's like, I'm gonna make a period piece about romance. And you're like, Okay, buddy, go for it. <laughs> yeah, you do you, man. <laughs> you you've earned it, go for it, I guess. Um so yeah, I, I'd be watching that. <laughs> I'll be watching that at some point. But no, I really haven't seen much of Daniel Delay's stuff other than, you know, Gangs of New York and then Last of the Mohicans, which are both just really good films. Although I heard he retired or something, or he's just not interested in acting as much anymore because you know the usual shit. You know, there's nothing that's good nothing good has come up has come my way and stuff like that. Yep, he is described as a retired English actor. He's almost 65, which is, just doesn't seem right, but go on. Is he English? Yeah. I thought he was American. So you would never know. <laughs> yeah. He's just so good. <laughs> um, but yeah, he has been around for... The uh, earliest film that I've got recorded as is 1982. Hmm. So yeah, 40 years of acting. I'd probably pack it in as well. Yeah. And, and that's the thing as well as retire as the greatest you know just, just leave <laughs> just walk away and be yeah. like all right boys done my shift uh, you guys pick it up from here yeah good luck <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna go get a sandwich you guys pick it up yeah uh speaking of retiring as the greatest uh tom brady is done with the nfl again apparently uh didn't he retire recently he retired a couple of years ago and then that was after he left the patriots said probably done with football uh, but yeah, I think we just announced my retirement and then comes back at retirement to play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for a couple of seasons. Um, won the Super Bowl as a Buccaneer. <laughs> His first year there, which is like, damn, that is a flex and a half. Because <laughs> you assume it's always been the Tom Brady, Bill Belichick partnership, but like that New England Patriots staff, the team, like that unit wins Super Bowls. And for Tom Brady to turn and say, actually, I can win them with someone else. So kind of the greatest of all time again suck it you're like okay respect <laughs> i respect the game on that one um but he has um retired again after a pretty bad season and it's been one of those things of if he'd actually stayed i mean if he retired after doing the the first one with tampa bay it would have been the funniest thing you'd ever seen in your entire life <laughs> just to walk in mic drop the entire nfl and be like hey i win super bowls playing pickup games fuck you <laughs> and then walk away at that point that would have been funny um but he's now officially just saying you know what i'm, I'm not who i used to be i'm retiring um might as well just go enjoy time with my kids and you're like yeah fair enough uh he also got divorced last year so yeah i mean i imagine his priorities might have shifted a bit um so yeah I mean, yeah that's... i was gonna say didn't he get divorced because his wife said something along the lines of you know it's football or me <laughs> if, if he did uh, I, I don't know the ends of that I try not to follow too many celebrity scandal cases it just ends up yeah, being probably. trash but uh, yeah it, it wouldn't surprise me I mean he's been doing he's been in the NFL for so long people who have been born after he started his career are now playing against him 
imagine being a coach that you you coach someone like the under twenties or something like the under eighteens at you know club level, and then you go and play for say Scotland or something like that, and there's a little fucker lining up against you, but he's like eight times the size of you now because <laughs> he's done nothing but eat steak and drink protein shakes. And it's not that Tom Brady was that bad; it's just that he now looks like the average quarterback. And you're like, yeah. Hmm, okay. <laughs> Again, one of the greatest, great at working in a team, but at the same time. Uh, do you really want to be average on an NFL pitch these days? It's getting pretty fucking yeah. violent out there. I wouldn't want to be like if I'm feeling a bit off. I'd be like, oh, I'm gonna phone in sick today. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel like getting my skull caved in. Fuck this. <laughs> Although speaking, of which uh, we're recording tonight on the twelfth of February. That means it's Super Bowl night tonight. Uh, the game starts for us here in the UK at eleven o'clock at night. Um, I-, I went to bed late last night and woke up at eight p.m. eight a.m. to go to work. So it's going to be a rough evening for me, but I'm going to try and stay <laughs> up and watch the game. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, yeah, Eagles versus Chiefs. So Philadelphia Eagles versus Kansas City Chiefs. Um, if I may, was making a prediction, if I was betting with my own money, I'd say the Eagles, because I think they have the advantage in general. However, yeah. the, the mind says the Eagles, the heart says the Chiefs, because I want Patrick Mahomes to win. I like that guy. He's very talented. I mean... Tom Brady is leaving. I want to see... I think he's the next big thing in the quarterback position. And I want to see him get that big fat trophy as a kind of like a marker on history. So I... I mean, put it this way. The game where he, he had an ankle injury recently. Um, the game where he's he got the injury, he didn't stop playing after the injury. He was doing these jump shots where he's like jumping to throw the ball, which is very hard to do because you need perfect technique. He was doing that off the right ankle. The right ankle is the one that got damaged. So he just switched to the left one. How much do you have to practice to get that good? It's insane. <laughs> he has committed himself to football in a way that is just so admirable. And yeah, I, I think he's I mean he's been touted as the next big thing for a couple of years. I'd like to see him actually pull it off. Because it's overdue. I think he's deserved it at this point. And, I'd like to see him win. The Eagles won it recently, I think a couple of years ago. So it's not like they're missing out in a big way. And also Eagles fans kick off. Like it really kicks off. I don't know if um you watch us always sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah, I've actually uh, actually went back to finish the seasons that I didn't watch. Mm-hmm. So I just ended the Ireland saga, I guess. Yeah. The Irish <laughs> season's series. weird. I like it though. Yeah, it's a good one. Not bad. Uh, the COVID jokes don't really land all that well, though, in my mind. <laughs> but they, they actually used footage because, obviously, they're they're fans of Philadelphia. The show's always shot there, so they have Philadelphia yeah. fans. They included the Philadelphia Eagles win a couple of years back in part of the show. <laughs> and included footage. And you see how passionate the fans are because Philadelphia gets nothing. Like, it really... It's, it's one of the places, like, if it wasn't for Ohio, like, if it wasn't for Cincinnati... People would shit on Philadelphia so much. Yeah, your your most famous person is a fake character from the Rocky movies. That's the best thing they've got. It's yeah. a fake character. So people uh, shit on Philadelphia. So I mean, it's nice to see them win. They kind of like it. But the Chiefs have had a rough couple of years, and they've been so good for the last couple of years as well. And Mahomes has been a big part of that. You kind of want to see them nail it. But if I was putting my money on it. I pick Eagles. <laughs> it's a shame. But I, I think the Chiefs have enough kind of like magic tricks up the sleeve that they could possibly pull it off. 
So, I mean, I'm going up there to watch this game and we're watching it with my parents because they watch the NFL as well. And I think it's uh, actually a good game. I'm really hoping. And admittedly, I'm probably going to edit this episode tomorrow. So if this all is just replaced with beeps, you know what happened, right? Yeah. (laughs) If any of the audio says, I'm really looking forward to the Eagles for winning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just get that clean audio now, Colin. Yeah. I really think the, the Eagles played well last night. <laughs> so you, if you're listening to this episode and Colin randomly says, the Philadelphia Eagles, <laughs> you know why. <laughs> maybe I just replace it with text-to-speech. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, but yeah, Super Bowl's going to be interesting. And we're in the middle of uh, Six Nations games, aren't we, for rugby? Yep, uh, absolutely. And as a as a Scottish fan, as a Scottish rugby fan, I'm in a weird yet very hopeful place because... Uh, we won two games in the bounce, which hasn't happened in a fucking while, one of which being England and the other one being Wales, two teams that, one team that we're sort of getting a leg up on in terms of, you know, we can compete with them on a more even plane and another team we haven't beaten in 12 years. So, or sorry, in 12 matches, we haven't beaten Wales in a while. I mean, to be fair, the Welsh team was the best on the planet for like, a good couple of years. And it was... Yeah, and now they've been kind of pushed down into the, into the rankings. And the yeah. fact that we beat them 35 points to 7, mm. we held Wales, who have won the Six Nations a few times. I think they won it last year and maybe... No, France won it last year, Wales won it the year before. Uh, we held this team to 7 points for 80 minutes. is fucking unreal. The fact that we defended that well is fucking, it's scary to me. It's mind-boggling to me. Yeah, and... Uh, the defense for Scotland's rugby is always the thing where like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> again, really, you're going to drop that ball again. You're going to land that yeah. pass or miss that tackle again. It's, yeah, to an extent, that's what it used to be. But now it's just Scotland are genuinely probably the defensively the scariest team on the in the competition because attacking-wise, we've got some good attackers, but we give away so many fucking penalties because we drop, like you said, we drop the ball and attack constantly. Mm. But to then realise that that's a weak point of our game, we just stonewall, like iron fucking steel wall out the opposition for that length of time until they get so tired where they drop the ball mm. or that we've got uh, in rugby uh, if there's a ruck formed with the balls on the ground and it's ready to be played, uh, another player can uh, jackal over and try and rip the ball. We have at least six players on our team that are experts at that shit, like surgical removal of the ball from the, the opposition's ruck. Mm. And so we just kind of hold them out for that posi- that amount of time and then just send in these surgeons to go and remove the ball from the ruck <laughs> and then play it on from there and give it to the speedsters because we've got a few fast motherfuckers. I mean, do you want to talk about that try from the England game? I think we have to. Uh, th- that try, which is honest to God, can beauty of an example of a try. Uh, South African-born Scotsman uh, Duhan van der Merwe uh, caught an absolute peach of a ball from the Scottish winger Kyle Stein and just ran almost the full length of a pitch to score one of the greatest individual tries I've ever seen in a game of rugby. Not only that, he did it while fending off five fully grown big boy forwards. Yeah. Just literally batting them away. And then he scored the try right between the uprights. Anyone watching that, you know, English fan, Scottish fan, even even if you're not a rugby fan, you just watched it going, holy shit, that is fucking peak athleticism. Yeah, I was going to say, that's like, fan, that is rugby at its core, but no, it's athleticism, it's 
it's power, strength, speed, it's just so much combined into one, and then just he makes it look easy as well, which is like, okay, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Duhan van der Merwe, uh, he's been as a Glasgow fan, I always hated seeing him on the opposition because I was like, this fucker is going to just tap dance through us. He's going to like push us about because he's just he's he's a genetic freak, right? He's just so like upper body strength is killer, but then he's got the legs to back it up and just literally power through, uh, like four or five forwards to go and uh, score the try. But seeing him on the Scotland team, it's genuinely it's made everybody up their game really because. He'll be running these fucking massive lines and battering through people, and all the other like sort of forwards and backs are just looking at him, going, "Shit, we need to up our game if we want to be anything like this guy." And then training and they have, quite frankly, they have. Is it training against somebody like that really helps your defense? Well, if absolutely. You're, you're lining up against him. Ah, oh, fuck, we got to tackle him. Like you have to tackle him. You have to figure out how to break somebody that big that fast, so that when yeah. that shows up in another team, like, I know how to deal with this. I was training with him the other day, and I basically kicked his ass, so I'll do the same thing. I'll just line up again, go for that angle into that part of the shit, and go. Yeah. That helps the whole team around. Maybe that's it. Maybe we just have a new generation of kids coming into the, the, the squad, and it's like, okay, we all need to step up to the new level, and everyone else kind of comes along with it. I mean, yeah, it makes sense that, you know, Scotland's game's up quite a lot, especially in defence, like, if easy to have kind of offense players that are kind of big but then like if you have a defense takes teamwork in a way yeah i reckon that's where we're getting a bit more of a competitive edge is that the teamwork's coming because we have to deal with our own monster attacking players yeah absolutely and if we've got if we've got sort of team if players like that like said like so this new phase of players that are coming up that are just raising standards i think we need to kind of dig more into that because i think the change in Scottish rugby basically since I've been paying attention to competitive rugby again for the past maybe 10-12 years is honestly night and day because I remember going to see uh, Scotland games in primary school and maybe a couple of times in high school and just you know expecting maybe to get a couple of tries here and there and if we played the game and only got scored you know three times against us I thought yeah that's a good game we played well defensively but there wasn't that much hype about Scotland at the time. So, to see them breaking that stigma of Scotland, they're quite a boring team, they're you know, the strongest team in the league because they're propping everybody else up, that kind of thing. To see that stigma being broken and then people around around the game of rugby are just sitting, looking inward at Scotland thinking, ah, fuck, these guys aren't the, uh, like, they're not the, the outcast red-headed stepchild anymore. They're actually a fucking threat in there they need to be watched otherwise they're just going to run over the top of us now yeah we can't just run the training drills against scotland we need to actually have a scotland plan to you know go up against them yeah we can't just play well against scotland we actually have to have a plan in place yeah which is it's good to see i mean not that big of a like national sports fan not that big of a sports fan in general but when you find out mm-hmm. that you know your team requires a plan your team's worthy of respect now you're like yeah <laughs> yeah and it's it's been well fought for because it's been long fought for. Yeah, uh, Scottish rugby has been just kind of like, I just assume we've lost. Like, I don't even bother checking the score. I'm like, okay, how much? How how much did we lose by? Was it that bad? Okay, it wasn't. Oh, we only lost yeah. by fourteen. That's not too bad. <laughs> uh, it feels good to do a sports corner again because it's been a while since we've done one. I, I don't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, fucking hell. 
I mean, I was going to say, it's not like there was a lot going on last year, but I'm pretty sure last year with the Olympics, we missed most of that. I think the most entertaining thing I saw there was like rock climbing. That was fun. Um, yeah. And then beyond that, it was just, I mean, I don't think there was that much going on. I mean, there was a, the World Cup, but not a you know, soccer fan, so I'm not going to watch it. Yeah, no, I don't care about football. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I guess like just having our games come back, you're like, okay, now we get to chat shit. Yeah. Um, I guess wrap things up the elevator pitch. Dom, you got anything for us? Yeah, I actually do have one. Um, it's actually like kind of a remnant from the, the best of episode, but uh, as you know, uh, no secret that I'm I'm a D and D fan, a Critical Role fan. I would talk about Vox Machina season two, but like we said in previous episodes, when something's good, kind of don't really have a lot of lot to say about it. When the animation's good, the acting's good, the script's good, kind of fuck all you can say about it. Uh, other than go watch it, but uh, as a as a D and D fan, I'm always looking for uh, podcasts that are maybe a bit more accessible than Critical Role because Critical Role are three, four, sometimes six hour episodes, and they're just they're quite they get quite heavy in terms of like the the time input they need to put into them. So I'm always looking for something that's maybe a bit more bite sized. And this is when I came across a podcast called Dark Dice, which I've just linked to uh, Colin just now. And it's a different type of podcast in the sense that the characters get put through the ringer and there's no real positivity or message at the end of it. Whereas in Critical Role, there's always a positivity about it. It's like they can pick themselves back up and continue on fighting because they have the power of friendship. There's always a lightning in Critical Role. Uh, None of that in Dark Dice. Dark Dice, um, literally, they're putting putting in a possible situation and their stress and their their sanity levels, their stress levels are all put to the test. Uh, their their uh, mission in this is they get put into uh, they get they get uh, led to a certain site and they have to try and find a whole bunch of kidnapped children because these kidnapped children are being used for a ritual to summon uh, I think they call it the false god or something like that. You know, typical D&D stakes, but all the way through the game, the DM asks them to do sanity checks they go through a certain amount of uh, if those certain amount of sanity points a certain point of a certain aspect of the game will unfold and the character will have to react to that and it's the good thing about it for me is the longest an episode goes is 58 minutes sometimes episodes are only about half an hour which is absolutely perfect uh, I love watching Critical Role but it is a huge time investment and just to see something where it's just a bit darker when it's it's not characters who are just like yeah I trust you buddy it's just kind of where did you come from why are you here? Why are you here right now in this, you know, fucking weird situation that we're in? You need to tell me everything about you. And it's it gets a bit kind of paranoid. It's, it's just it's totally different. And because it's not professional voice actors, there are some very, very big mistakes as well that they leave in there. And it's just, it's a different D&D podcast. And it's one that I would highly recommend. If you just want something a bit different where it doesn't really seem like the the uh, the player characters are going to get out of the situation because it is bleak in comparison to Critical Role. But that's why I like it. That's good because I'm getting recommendations for D&D podcasts and I'm like, I don't like the sound of that. I don't like the sound of one. If you tell me there's a, a slightly, not dark, or a bit of edgy there, but we talked about the difference to edgy and dark there before. Tell yeah. us a darker version of the D&D podcast where, you know, trust isn't assumed, i put it that way. Yeah. I like but you're the in the party together and you're working out of convenience. At the same time, there's a there's a heavy distrust about the party. 
Yeah, because that's always the part of a D&D game I never quite really sync up with. Like, it's a bit kind of... You always just meet. Like, the party's pretty much established unless you go through a whole thing of meeting people and bringing them in one character at a time and then who do you decide who's the main character, which perspective do you start with? If you're starting with the party, it just kind of becomes like, oh, you're all just working together, you're all just best buddies. Yeah. But the idea of characters and, you know, alliances of convenience is pretty good. Yeah. And it's definitely something that I've taken forward in, in my uh, D&D playing, is that even though you're working together, my loyalty is not always assumed. If you stab me in the back at something, that tenuous loyalty is going to be tested. And and my current uh, Pathfinder group, that is definitely getting tested quite a bit. Yeah. I guess that's the kind of, like, if you were to play into the chaotic, kind of lawful side of things, I guess. Like, hey, look, yeah. we're, we're cool right now, but if you fuck me over, I will throw you in a ditch and burn your corpse. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that idea. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I like the idea that, like you just said, uh, allegiances, alliances aren't assumed. Like, mm-hmm. you have to earn it. Yeah, I like it. Uh, um, I have something a little bit less intense. Uh, All right, I, cool. I got handed, uh, somebody just was talking about a channel called uh, Djibouti Dubs, and it is just people voicing over infomercials and old cartoons from back in the day. And it is just silly fun. I mean, I'm sending you the link example that I'm going to send over is a YouTube short about Hot Pockets. And it is just like old school, like infomercials, like back in the day, like the cooking channel that you used to see. And it's just somebody taking the piss out of it with like a weird kind of, it's not quite Eric Cartman voice. That's my kind of go-to reaction. But it's this weird kind of angry old lady voice that they have that's just, it, if it hits you right, it's going to send you to the fucking moon and back laughing your ass off, like splitting your sides. There's a good chance that I will send this link out and people will bounce off this clip and say it's crap, and I get that, but this just, it hit me one night and it's so my kind of weird shitty sense of humour that I just really enjoy it. So I, I recommend at least checking out Djibouti Dubs. Didn't Djibouti Dubs, didn't they do uh, the Spider-Man dubs and stuff like that? Probably, I, it's their type of thing I can imagine they would have done. Um, hmm. I, Yeah, it, it probably is one of the things they've done. It'd be pretty... I'll go back and dig into it, but I mean, I've just been watching the the infomercial stuff because I, I find infomercials hilarious. This idea that like you're gonna have a TV show that is basically mm. like a thirty minute, like a fifteen minute advertisement for a product that you know is shit, like it's yeah. not the best, <laughs> but it just so happens that someone's made an easy, convenient product that fits one very niche use, and it's available now for only twenty nine ninety nine. And I'll, I yeah. find that fascinating. So the idea that somebody's out there just ripping into these adverts is just that—that's very much my sense of uh, humor, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think that's all for today. So uh, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can do so on Twitter at Jibberfish. Although at this rate, who knows how long that's going to last? I am fucking done with Twitter <laughs> at this point. Yeah. It's getting more and more into SS, but we have uh, been looking into alternatives. I don't think we found one that we actually enjoy. Um, I did look into stuff like Mastodon, all the kids were jumping over there, and I'm like, that's not a social media platform, that's a Discord server. Um, yeah. do, do we have our own Discord server that we could have grabbed when we started the podcast? There's fuck all in it, so it might be time to go through and just perk it up a little bit. Maybe share the link to that in case you're using Discord and interested in hanging out with us a bit more. Um, yeah. We have, uh, we do still have the email address, so you can email us in at uh, G- uh, sorry, gibberfishpodcast at gmail.com uh, if you find anything that you recommend as a social media platform, I'd love to hear from you 
um, because we're running out of ideas, and I don't think we can do Tumblr. I don't think we're welcome there for some reason. <laughs> no, I mean, you don't want to go to Tumblr. No, I don't want to go for Tumblr for so many reasons. Um, but yeah, uh, you can reach out to us through those methods at the moment. And again, if you have any recommendations for a social media platform or just a nice place to hang out, we're, uh, we're open to recommendations. But in the meantime, I've been Colin Graham. I've been Tom Anderson. And we've been talking gibberish. <laughs>